my son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. This is Giles Milton, host of the Unknown History Podcast, and you're listening to a special mini-series from historian Tom Clavin on Wild Bill Hickok. Hi, I'm Tom Clavin, and this is part two of the heroes of Valley Forge, George Washington's surrogate sons. A dramatic and poignant story within the story of Valley Forge, told in my book of the same name written with Bob Drury, is about George Washington and his surrogate sons. He did not have children of his own, and turning 46 and married to Martha Washington, he would not. But at Valley Forge, he was surrounded by three very young men totally devoted to him, one of them the founding father you never heard of. Let's start with the Marquis de Lafayette. He was all of 19 years old from a noble family in France when he left to come to America and presented himself to George Washington. For George Washington, he was impressed by the young man for one reason being that he could finally look him in the eye. Washington was six foot four. Most men at that time, the average height was five 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 six. Marquis de Lafayette was six three. So here was this idealistic, energetic young man looking Washington in the eye and saying, I want to join your army. The two met when a 19-year-old sporting a major general sash brashly introduced himself to Washington in Philadelphia's City Tavern on the last evening of July, 1777. Elegant and slim, with full lips and upturned nose and a prematurely receding hairline, Lafayette charmed Washington with his youthful brio for poetic pronouncements, as well as his ability to segue from diffident self-abasement to fervent ambition in mid-sentence. Adding to this was the cachet of his physical stature. Washington invited Lafayette to join him the following morning for a tour of the Continental defenses along the Delaware River. The American general was certainly not blind to the diplomatic advantages of befriending a well-connected French nobleman. Yet Washington, whose own youth was rife with romantic payance to justice and fair play, also saw something deeper in Lafayette's earnest devotion to American liberty. The happiness of America is intimately connected to the happiness of all mankind, the Marquis had written to his wife upon making landfall in the United States. Even if Washington expressed such sentiments less floridly, they were very similar to his own. By the fall of 1777, the courageous and reckless 20-year-old was a major general in the Continental Army, and Washington doted on the cultish French nobleman. The Battle of Brandywine, Lafayette was wounded. When Washington heard this, he sent a surgeon to the front with the instructions, treat him as you would treat my own son. Washington was reluctant to let Lafayette go when he was ordered to invade Canada. Yes, that's right. In the middle of winter of 1777 and 78, the French nobleman was told to go to Albany where an army would await him to invade Canada. He got as far as Albany. There was no army. He came back. His position back at Valley Forge helped secure the alliance with France, which made such a difference to the American cause. At the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse that June, the pivotal battle of the Revolutionary War, Lafayette, George Washington, and Nathaniel Green slept on their greatcoats on the ground with their men, ready to resume the battle. 
Lafayette would remain George Washington's loyal general and friend for decades, and his son would be named George Washington Lafayette. He was one of the three surrogate sons with Washington at Valley Forge. The next one was Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton was only 22 years old. He had been born in the Caribbean. He had made his way to America. Washington first noticed him when Hamilton was commanding an artillery unit in battle and doing such an effective job that Washington turned to his aides and said, who is that young man? Bring him to me. When he did, he was immediately impressed by Hamilton's eagerness and intelligence and passion for the American Revolution. He became Washington's right-hand aide. What that meant is that he could practically finish Washington's sentences. Washington dictated many of his letters and general orders and memos to Hamilton. Hamilton seemed to know what Washington was thinking at the same time Washington was thinking it. And every day of the Valley Forge encampment, Hamilton was there working with Washington, talking to him, being his confidant, being sometimes his supporter, being sometimes his crutch when Washington would give in to despair or come close to it. It was Hamilton who composed the 13,000-word manifesto in late January 1778 that would transform both the Continental Army and the Continental Congress when Washington delivered it. As Hamilton and John Lawrence stood off to the side of Moore Hall's great room, taking in their imposing commander-in-chief's oration, it surely must have dawned on them that they were witnessing history writ large. Washington, as always the tallest man in the room, was declaring his own colonial army obsolete, ineffective, and doomed to failure. And though neither aide left personal reminiscences about the meeting, it is easy to imagine the excitable Lawrence barely able to contain himself during the scene he was witnessing, and to envision the more cerebral Hamilton calmly fixing his gaze on one delegate after another as the powerful message he had composed struck home. America needs a new, modern, effective army. Hamilton played a crucial role during George Washington's presidency, including being Secretary of the Treasury. He basically invented the American financial system. Alas, as many of us know, he was only 49 years old when killed in a duel by Aaron Burr. He may have been president himself someday, but we'll never know that. I just mentioned the name John Lawrence. He was one of the founding fathers. No one fought more heroically and believed in the cause of liberty more than Lawrence. Why don't we know who he is? First, let me talk about his eagerness to do battle with the British. During the Battle of Germantown, the British had taken up residence in a house, a stone structure. They couldn't be burned out. They couldn't be bombed out. Just one of the men and Lawrence attacked the British and were repulsed. They attacked again. Lawrence was wounded twice before finally other soldiers and officers prevented him from exposing himself to enemy fire again. This thoroughly impressed Washington as maybe being a little foolhardy, but also showing great courage. During the Battle of Germantown, Lawrence had been riding with General Sullivan when in the opening moments of battle, a British bull tore through the fleshy part of his right shoulder. Ignoring the wound, he pressed on through the fog until Sullivan halted his troops outside the Chew House. One of Sullivan's French aides, watching Knox's cannonballs bounce off the estate's thick walls, hatched a plan to burn the British out and tab Lawrence as his second. The two streaked across the killing field to gather hay from a nearby stable. Their arms filled with the hay, they crept beneath one of the house's ground floor windows. When the Frenchman ripped open what was left of the shutters, a redcoat fired. He missed, but Lawrence drew his sword and made for the window. He had nearly reached it when he was spun to the ground by another ball, this one lodging in his side. The two escaped without further injury, 
unless one counts the anxiety that overcame Lawrence's father. When Henry Lawrence learned of his son's wounds, he dashed off a letter pleading with John to appreciate the difference between genuine courage and reckless temerity. John Lawrence became the best friend of Alexander Hamilton when he became George Washington's third surrogate son, and he was also just 22 years old. He was born and raised in South Carolina, and he dutifully followed his father's wishes to become a lawyer and a well-educated gentleman. However, he left studies in Europe and came to work with Washington as an aide and as a back channel to his father, Henry, who had become the president of the Continental Congress. Henry, because of his son's letters, came to be one of Washington's biggest allies, and this helped immeasurably when there was an effort underway to topple Washington's commander-in-chief. Lawrence continued to thirst for battlefield glory. He loved to lead cavalry charges, but was given few opportunities to do so. He was too valuable to Washington as his third surrogate son and as his aide. After the Battle of Monmouth Courthouse, Lawrence did get an opportunity to go down to his native South Carolina and start to fight down there. He was interrupted when he was sent overseas to help negotiate the treaty that would eventually end the war. But the war was still raging when he came back in 1782 in South Carolina. And finally, the time came for John Lawrence to get the dream that he had had for some time. He was going to lead a grand charge against an invading British force. He had always pictured himself atop a horse, brandishing his sword at the head of a column of American soldiers, attacking the British. And one day, when he heard of a British force coming close to his beloved Charleston, he mounted up. He had malaria. He'd been bedridden for two days, but he wasn't going to miss this opportunity. He got on his horse collected his men, and off they went. And when they saw the British, they charged full speed. A bullet hit John Lawrence, knocked him off his horse, and killed him. He was only 27 years old. His father buried him on his plantation in South Carolina. Because of his young death, he never got to be Secretary of State, Secretary of War, Senator, or Congressman from South Carolina, as he was surely destined to be. And that's why John Lawrence is the founding father you've never heard of. An argument can be made that without these three young and dynamic men at Valley Forge, George Washington would have given into despair and not have been the inspiring commander-in-chief that he was. The relationship between George Washington and Lafayette, Hamilton, and Lawrence is the very personal one of the father of his country. You've been listening to guest historian Tom Clavin. I'm your host, Giles Milton. Tune in to the Unknown History Podcast on Apple Podcasts. Stitcher, Spotify, or at quickanddirtytips.com. Thanks for listening.